Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Jason Tice. Good evening, John. How you doing? Doing well, Jason. How are you? Doing well. Wonderful. Also joining us tonight, Jason, your best friend and mine, Amos King. Hey, guys. What do you want to improve tonight? <laughs> I want to improve that Amos is talking about improvement. Yay. I win. Culture is contagious. <laughs> I'm sorry, Amos, but I do think that Jason wins now. <laughs> he might have. As I've heard from some people I work with, persistence is a virtue. I'm sorry, patience. Patience is a virtue. So you got to be persistent and you got to be patient. And over time, things and even people, I'll use the term, they may change. So That's how I got married. Persistence. Yeah. I asked my wife to marry me twice. The first time she told me, hell no. That is persistent. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the story sometime, not on a recording. <laughs> oh, yeah. but everyone will all know now. That's not good. That could be oh, good for them. That could be submitted as evidence in the divorce proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope we don't get there. Guys, let's talk some Agile stuff tonight. What do you think? That's a great idea, John. Okay. What I thought we could talk about tonight is uh, how we should work with our product owners and product sponsors and program managers and whatever their role is, maybe they're business owners, small business owners, application owners, to decide how to prioritize things and what to prioritize. I think there's a little bit of a art there. Maybe there's some science as well. I think it's important that uh, we always are focused as a team on the most valuable things for the business or for whatever the case may be, right? I think that there are a number of axes on which you measure value. Yeah, but John, I think the way you set this up, you've already described one of the biggest problems out there, which many teams suffer with, and that is that they do not receive clear direction about what is a priority, and instead they receive conflicting direction and conflicting information from multiple people, product owner, business analyst, product manager, and that just creates thrashing. Sure. And we can discuss that as well. I would like to start with the topic of how do we go about prioritizing? I think that will okay. I think that will also address the what do you do when you're getting multiple types of our direction from multiple angles. I think the first thing you do is eliminate the stuff you don't need to prioritize, the stuff that doesn't matter. And I think that is a big issue in successful and unsuccessful softwares is determining what things matter and what things don't and prioritizing that way. So let's not even worry about prioritizing the stuff that is a distraction. That sounds like uh, two big categories then right off the bat. It's stuff that matters and stuff that doesn't matter. There, there's three categories. There's showstopper. I've said this before. Showstopper, distraction, and game changer. Another phrase people use is they talk about Moscow, which is the, what is it, the must-have, could-have, should-have, and then, of course, won't-have, just because it adds no value. Right, that's distraction. Yeah, but I think the issue is, in Amos, where I want to make sure we don't oversimplify this discussion because, in my opinion, what we're discussing here is a little less about the software development, and it's more about the business context of the business that the software you're working on supports. I, I'm talking the same thing. Those features are the business context. That's the business's decision 
It's not a technical decision at the bottom level. It is a business decision. Is this feature viable to the product or not? And that's a product owner's job is yes. to take in all of the inputs and all of the ideas and separate them into these buckets. And once you have them in these buckets, that's when we can apply value to them and decide which ones are priority and which ones are not. Okay. And I guess my statement there is I've seen a lot of product owners that do that activity <laughs> and they do it strictly based upon subjective data. And I guess my request, and I know it's, I'd actually like to have a discussion with you guys about what it's relevant and what it's not, how you can get some economic or some, think of that in terms of business value, some economic data about different stories. If you've ever played the Get Kanban game, you know that's a great example because in that game, you're working on like a web project and each story you complete, it provides new subscribers to your site and those subscribers provide revenue. Now, so if you're doing a web product or an app, that's great, but a lot of us don't. So I guess, I mean, do you guys have experiences of maybe a way you could get some economic data about your stories so you could make these types of decisions? That I think <clears throat> is where exactly where we want to go, Jason. We want to start with trying to provide some advice, some tips, some direction to product owners for how to make some of those economic decisions in terms of the prioritization and the assessment of value for stories. So right off the bat, I think that a product owner has to establish in the project what are the important aspects of the project. And as you mentioned, in the Git Kanban game, it's all about adding subscribers to the site. So each project hopefully has some vision, right, some set of goals, something that you're trying to accomplish. Not every project is going to have the same set of, of ways to evaluate what success is for that project. So for starters, we've got to come up with what success look like. From success, then you can start to evaluate what are the things that we will do that will help us drive success. So, maybe so what do you do when different people on as part of the team, uh, whether that be product owner, customer, company owner, developer, anybody on that team has a different idea of what is moving the product forward and what the product really is? I think you have to take time at that point to reevaluate or re-explain, maybe rediscuss the goals and the vision for the project and help get everybody back onto the same page. It could be, I actually have been on a project recently that suffered from some of this very large project, a number of people that are stakeholders in the project, a single product owner, but number of these stakeholders they have varying ideas for what success is. Some people want to migrate users onto a platform. Some people want to save money. Sometimes those things were in direct conflict with each other. So when that occurs, I think you've got to sit down with your stakeholders, whomever they are, developers, managers, product owners, etc., and say, guys, we need to be very crystal clear about what our vision is and what we're trying to accomplish so that we can be sure that we're prioritizing focused toward that vision. John, what I want to draw focus to there is it's this discussion. And I actually, this came up, I don't remember the episode number, but I know we had a product owner episode once where we talked about adding product owners. And there was a question in that podcast about whether like the product owner was a full-time job, a part-time job, could a developer also be the product owner? And I remember I said no, because being the product owner is about building relationships and working with stakeholders and finding that common ground. Even if you're on a small project, if you've got a lot of stakeholders, that could very quickly become a full-time job. And if you're not focusing on it, 
that's what people are going to, you know, some stakeholders going to call his, the guy he used to work with who's on the team. It's going to ask for a favor, you know, and now we start doing deals. And I mean, that's where if you're a product owner, there's a lot of work to do there and I would challenge you to do it. I think that's the product owner's job really is short-term economic data gains or losses, long-term economic gains or losses, plus a product vision, which doesn't always follow in with necessarily a current economic gain or loss that you can understand. Yeah. If you're trying to set yourself apart from the rest of the pack that's doing something similar than you, it's not always an economic thing that you're gauging. You have to have some of that subjective idea. Yeah, and the other thing just to clarify for people out there is there are some different terms in the space out there that you may hear. Right now, we are talking about the product owner, which is typically the person that works between the stakeholders within an organization and the team. Some organizations have what they call a product manager, and really from a, some of, more from a business school context or from the business context, they have this idea of a product manager who's more looking at the market forecast for the product. Sometimes if you're like doing lean startup, you might have one person does both of those. But again, to what Amos said, there's a lot of work there. So um, there is a lot of work there, Jason. But going back to one of your statements about the product owner can't be a developer. If I'm truly in a in a lean startup situation and I've started, I've bootstrapped my own company and I'm both a developer, the visionary, the architect, the product owner, the product manager, I'm all rolled into one, right? I could, that can happen. I could be yeah. that guy. Yeah. And to be fair, a role is not a person, okay? A role is a set of duties or a set of tasks that need to be performed to be successful. So, so if the team wants to share those tasks, that's great. I and mean, that could work. But again, what I've seen in, and I've coached in a lot of environments where, you know, the product owner shows up for two hours at the planning meeting and answers questions about the user stories from the team so they can plan and do their next sprint or their next group of stories. Then they vanish. They don't come to stand up. They don't talk to the team. They're not responsive when the team has questions. They don't groom the backlog. And then they show up at the next planning meeting and they try to do it again. And it just doesn't work because there's a lot of things the product owner needs to do in an ongoing fashion. I think every person on that team needs to act as a product owner. They all need to be talking these out. They need to work as a team to be that product owner, to have a shared vision and to move forward the best way. If you don't have the whole team like feeling the same way about this, they're not going to do as good of a job. They need to have that shared vision and you all need to be moving forward. So and you don't so, give that to them by having some guy tell them what their vision is. But, they need but, to be a part but of Amos, it. Amos, from one of your favorite things in the world, Scrum, you know, Scrum has a defined product owner role. And Scrum would say that the product owner is the single party responsible for what the team's building. I'm not a fan of this because it sounds, and again, if you think product owner equals person, it sounds like you have one person who is a single point of failure for that team. But what you're describing is like where, okay, you know, I go out and I talk to my stakeholder and he tells me something and then John goes out and talks to someone else. And how do you synchronize that? I'm not talking about John going out and talking to somebody else. I'm talking about the stakeholder wants to talk to people. He talks to the team. Yes. Okay. That's fine. That's all well and fine, right? You can do that. Okay, but then how do you prevent that from becoming a meeting palooza where, okay, now the whole team is going to stakeholder meetings, which a lot of times that's something the product owner will coordinate on behalf of the team. And next thing you know, my team spent, you know, 15 hours a week in meetings with stakeholders and they got great information. At that point, they've only got 25 hours of the week left to actually work on writing software and coding. 
it doesn't if, necessarily. If they got great information and great vision, then they can move forward better anyway. It wasn't a waste. If they sat there for 15 hours and ignored everything and didn't pay attention or nobody ever got anywhere, then yes, that was a waste of time. But it's not a wasted meeting if they come out with value. What happens if they do that this week? And that's great. Get the project started. Have a kickoff, you know, have a party. I'll even show up. I'll bring my Lego. I will build a model. It'll be awesome. Okay, now we're going. We've got that vision. The vision hasn't changed. And the next week, we do it again. Again, if you're still coming out with value at the end of that meeting and it wasn't wasted time, it's okay. And sometimes it takes a few of those and then you have a bunch of meetings that are only 20 minutes. And then three months later, you have another meeting that's all day. And that's pretty normal. And the successful projects I've seen, that's how it's worked. I've not seen it work not one time where there's one person going out and talking to all the stakeholders and then coming back to the team and saying, okay, here's what we got. Not once have I okay. seen that successful. Okay, so... Abus, I'm going to say you're a little bit of a unicorn because Wait, you were the one talking about transparency last well, week and the fact that you want to bring everything up in front of everybody on the team. And now you want to say, I'm going to go back in a closet and talk to the stakeholder and then come back and tell you guys what the vision is. No, I'm no, saying, okay, you want to be okay. transparent and so, open with the team. Then you need to be transparent and open with the team. You can't play time, devil's advocate there. Time out, Amos. Cool <laughs> down. Breathe. Okay. What I'm saying is that I guess I'm trying to be respectful to the different roles on the team. And I've worked with teams where, you know, the developers, they say, I just want to code. I don't want to go to the meetings. And some developers, you know, they trust their product owner. They're not the developers I want to work with, then. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. That's different. But there's lots of developers like that out there. And really, for some of them, I, that's why I know lots of people that have, if anything, developers that have enjoyed working in a Scrum team. Because I, from Scrum, the product owner goes out, the product owner works with the stakeholders, you know, figures out, you know, really goes to all these meetings to figure out what the priorities are, comes, brings the stories back to the team. The product owner is able to answer the questions the team that, has about the stories. I would and, say that means that they've never been in a successful planning and vision meeting. Like they've never been in one that was successful to where they gained anything out of it. And that's why they feel like I don't want to. I just want to code because whenever they see that their opinions matter in that meeting, they usually want to be there because most of us who are coding on it still like we put ourselves into it. And we, you've been there. You, you get passion and in, into this product and you want to tell all your friends that you're writing it and everything like that. And then. The product owner comes back and has some shitty idea that the stakeholders gave him and your your opinion didn't matter. But that's where that's part of the big game. Remember, the product owner is responsible not for a one-way push of information, Amos. The product owner is responsible for facilitating a feedback loop between the team and the stakeholders. To so we have a single goals. point of failure between two balloons. It's like pushing two balloons together till one point touches, and that's the product owner. So you have all the stakeholders on one side, all the developers on another, and a product owner right there where the two touch. Well, I'm not going to say that, again, as someone who does not like single points of failure and I believe in the bus test, I don't like that model. I'd like to ask you, Amos, aside from adopting crowdsourcing, what are the options then, you know, and again, there are a lot of teams out there. I think if you're a product owner, you're listening to us, you know, you might say, oh my gosh, that's my job. You know, I, I went, I took the scrub test. I, I'm practicing scrub. That's what I'm doing. And if I listen to what you're saying, Amos, you're saying that's wrong. So if that's wrong, what's the alternative? I have an alternative. Okay. Go ahead. In the military, Amos, I'm sure you're familiar with this. There's a concept of commander's intent, right? Where there's a shared vision that comes from the top that says, we want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. The whole intent behind that is so that should there be a disconnect in communication, 
should there be a disruption in the channels of communication, that units can continue to operate under the commander's intent. So from a software development perspective, what you really want to have is the same sort of thing. You want the entire team to be on board and read in, if you will, on the vision so that in the event that the team needs to make tactical decisions on an hourly basis, a day-by-day basis, they can make decisions following quote-unquote commander's intent. They can take that product owner's vision and they can operate to the best of their ability following along with that. That doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily, you know, follow something to the letter of the law. It means that they're going to make the best decisions that they can make with the information that they have at that given moment. And everybody's going to be okay with that because we have the shared understanding that the team needs to be able to operate without having to talk to a single point of contact every 30 seconds to get clarification on something. Right, but as the commander builds that vision, the commander doesn't go off and talk to one set and then go talk to another set. They often have like large meetings with a lot of people, and any officer will tell you that you need to listen to your enlisted personnel, especially the ones that have been there a while, because they have a lot of experience and a lot of understanding that even if you've been there for a long time, you don't really get. So if If you're not a developer in the trenches, you're not going to get what the developers understand. If you're a developer and you're not on the business side, you're not always going to get what they are without having conversation and understanding. And that's why I don't like the role of the product owner as a single person. I think that that person can facilitate communication between both sides in the meeting. And I think that's really their job. And ultimately to decide, a product owner can say, no way, that's not coming in. But he should be listening to both sides of that fence. And those sides of that fence should be talking to him at the same time in the same room. You know, one thing that I like to think about, you know, because again, you're, you're you're saying the same thing I was I was kind of saying, that is that the product owner is, in some ways, they're kind of like a servant leader. You know, they're kind of like the scrub master because you could be a product owner that says, you know what, I'm in charge. I'm going to be the single point of failure. I'm going to just say, this is how I want to do this. I'm going to listen to my stakeholders and I'm going to make a lot of decisions on their behalf. Or you could employ a servant leadership approach, which would be to really listen to what people have to say, the stakeholders, the team, and then work to build consensus about what provides the most business value. And I think there's a couple of things to think about when I say that. Obviously, stakeholders, they're going to want things that make the software do things that generate. In most places, you want to do something that generates revenue, generates money. Everyone's in business here. But, you know, maybe the team can provide some information about the level of effort or the complexity of some of those things. And that's information. But if I'm in the business, that's what I want to know. Because, okay, if there's two features out there and I could build both of them, but one of them I could build with much less effort and they both provide the same value, let's build the one that requires less effort or has less risk. So is there some kind of way that you can balance that risk? Like, would it be effort per economic gain. If you could subject, because I don't think that you can exactly quantify your effort, otherwise we'd be awesome at estimation. So if you can subjectively say, here is what the effort is, and then even the economic gain is usually a little bit subjective, it's a guess. So if you could divide the complexity by the economic gain, that could give you kind of a point value that you could then use. From Lean, but it's been adopted by Skilled Agile and a few other frameworks too, there's a metric called, it's weightest shortest job first. I guess So I guess it's not a metric, it's a prioritization scheme. And it's exactly what you're saying, Amos, what we're saying here. That is that you want to come up with some type of a quantitative value that represents the weight of the job. Okay, so think about that in terms of, um, you know, the value it provides. 
Then you want to go ahead and you want to think about the complexity. You want to find something that's not very complex, you know, that could be done in a small amount of time. And you want to look at that ratio. So ideally, you're working to identify things that provide high value that can be done with little effort. And if you compute that ratio, if you're a team and you're using points, you know, if you're doing story points, you could actually just compute it as a numerical ratio. And very quickly, you're going to see which how that ranks out. And you could take the stories that have the best ratio. Sometimes, like, things don't necessarily have an economic value, but they have some kind of intrinsic value to your product that without it, your product is not as good, right? Such as? So how do, how do you determine that? If I have accounting software, I need a profit and loss report. Otherwise, my accounting software is pretty useless. There are some people who will still buy it, but ultimately, that that's a needed feature that doesn't necessarily turn into direct economic gain. Sure it is, because it's a needed feature, so it drives adoption and usage. I think it's going to be very difficult for you to convince me that there are things that you will do to software that don't have an economic assessment, or don't have the ability to have an economic assessment attached to them. I want to say within the amount of time that you need to get it out, right? Yeah, everything has the ability to have an economic assessment, but... What if that economic assessment is going to take you six months? Well, it's, it may not be worth assessing then. Well, You're just yeah. going to go with the gut feeling. Sure. The other person we haven't talked about here that I know for many of our listeners is involved in their environments. You know, there's always the fun question. We're adopting Agile. Hi, I'm a business analyst. What do I do? Uh, do I become the product owner? Do I become the scrub master? Do I need to find a new job? Yes. To me, everything. Well, no, Amos, I don't agree with that because I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, good. Because <laughs> yeah, I, you said or, so that meant yes to all three of those. Oh, okay. Depending but, on the business analyst. What I was going to say is that you know what we're talking. These are business cases. I mean, I, when I went to business school, I mean, I took classes and they made us do this stuff, like you know, figure out a potential profit scenario based upon you know these assumptions, and you'd have to write your assumptions down. You have to state what it was, and you basically write a little business plan. Effectively, it's kind of like an. I think of this as an experiment to say, okay, if I build these features, if I clean up this code, you know, I can make it easier to maintain. This is what I think all of the economic impact is. I might make some revenue. I might decrease my cost. And to me, I think a great thing for a BA to do on an agile team would be to actually look at the stories and do some business case analysis, you know, build out some cases and then actually write down a forecast and then build the stories and see what you learn. Maybe you're spot on. So how do you do that with a tech debt story? So I would think about that. It's funny. I don't want to give it away. But since we mentioned the Get Kanban game before, you guys know there's there's a few stories in that game that don't provide revenue. They're intangible, they're called. And it's funny because, you know, if you do pay down that tech debt, tech debt we guys have discussed, it comes back to haunt us. Something's going to go wrong. Over time, it's going to take longer to write your software. So your costs are going to go up. That's right. It's not direct revenue. It's a cost. It is a direct revenue issue because it affects the total cost of ownership for that system, and then reduces the long-term revenue of the product. Let's simplify this. Let's just say it's economic. It has an economic impact on the software, okay? That way, if you happen to be someone who is into business, you won't flame us for using the wrong accounting terms. So, (laughs) But what I'm saying is, you know, you should be able, like if I was a BA on a team, and maybe if you're a technically-minded BA, or you're a BA that wants to learn more about the technology your team is using, 
Talk to them about their technical debt or their technical challenges and figure out how to make a business case. And I would do this like as an experiment. But if you're doing this thing called the improvement kata, where your team's trying to improve, say, hey, if we, you know, do all this refactoring that we know we have to do, will it decrease our cycle time? And will that decrease our cost to develop software? And actually, you know, run some numbers, set that up, and then have the team do the do the change and then measure the outcome and see what happens. Well, but see, then you're not really using it to prioritize, right? Because you're measuring the outcome after. So you've already done the story. We're, we're talking about upfront. How do you judge that upfront in I, I order guess, to put it in there? I'm thinking, and, and from Kanban, I'm thinking of using a little bit of, let's call it the scientific method. You know, I have a problem statement. We have technical debt in our code, okay? So I want to state a hypothesis, okay? If we clean up our technical debt, we hypothesize that this will happen. Okay, so I say that. At this point, the team says, hey, you know, we have identified potential value. So maybe you aren't going to get value from it or you're not going to get as much, but it's there. And to me, if you have that, that gives you some data that you could use to prioritize those uh, intangible stories in conjunction with all of the other stories that provide direct economic benefits. So I've also seen with tech debt, and you kind of hinted at it here, I think, is that I have a piece of tech debt that I know we need to take care of right now. And often I see teams moving forward and moving forward and moving forward and moving forward and not taking the time to sit back and look where what is slowing us down in the code? What tech debt do we have? They're just not thinking about it until they're so far down the road that it's a disaster and it's months of cleanup time. So is there a way to prioritize some time in during each cycle in order to make that happen and what value does that have in the long run yeah and i think that's all about what we're trying to discuss which is how do you sit down and how do you come up with a good way a repeatable way to prioritize stuff and that's where i think that you should have part of your team always dedicated to improvement like all they do is sit there and say hmm we could speed up our test by 5% by doing this. We could do this by doing that. And that, that's their whole job. And you just cycle people in and out of that. Just say, you know, I have a team of eight. One pair on that team at all times is going to be looking at ways to improve either internal code quality or our automating our processes in order to save us time. And I think that that's great. And you had put at one point in the, in the show note, or you texted me something one time, Amos, that said, MBAs beat developers all the time because MBAs can create better PowerPoints. No, I said they show up PowerPoint. You're trying to like sell something to someone and the, someone else is trying to sell the other thing. The first person that shows up with PowerPoint almost always wins. Okay, so I think you need to come to grips with the fact that every time we have a conversation about value, it's a sales call. It's a sales discussion because the whole thing about setting aside time or a set of people or some provisioning some amount of people to work on a continuous improvement of things, you have to sell that. It is absolutely saleable. Uh, You just have to come up with the right PowerPoint, the the right sales tactic to say, Here's how this is valuable, why this is valuable, why the investment in this nets us revenue, reduced cost, reduced complexity, and all of these things. But you can't just go to somebody and say, I want to take two people, put them on refactoring, put them on continuous improvement, because I think it's a good idea, right? A product owner has to sit there and make some tough choices about, we really need this feature now because we have this deadline coming up where we're showing off the software at a trade show, one of the cases in Git Kanban, right? So therefore, 
we've got to do this. I know we need to go back and refactor X, Y, and Z because it's sloppy, but right now I have to prioritize this feature over that so I can hit the trade show deadline so I can sell 10,000 copies of software. I'm preparing my rebuttal for Amos, so... For me? Yeah, since you're ripping on the business school guys over here, and oh, I happen to be one of them. Oh, you have an MBA? Yeah. That's why I like so much. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, yeah. But no, Amos, what you're saying is true because I've been on the other side of the table. You know, when I say the other side, I mean the business side of the table. So because sometimes, you know, you're in that meeting and there's like the developer side and then there's the business side. And it's interesting because it doesn't take much to, you know, again, some business people are not technical. And so, you know, we talk about refactoring. All they think about, like John said, they're thinking in economic decisions. And if you don't have any economic data to support technical debt, it's not even a hard sell. It's a no sell because the business community is conditioned to be driven by economic decisions. And I think think that's a a big developer issue is we always just want to talk in tech. And when they don't understand, then we don't. And I've been on both sides too. And I'm going to tell you a really bad story. Um, oh, it's good. I'm excited. I got my popcorn here. So I made a PowerPoint slide. This is where my you always win if you're the first person to make PowerPoint is because uh, the first time that I recognized this, I decided I was going to make some PowerPoint. And I went into a meeting with this PowerPoint slide that had a graph on it. And I had no numbers and no axis labels. And I just kind of made some crap up about the graph. And they said, okay. And this was after like six months of me telling them that they needed to do it. So, so you, you don't it. even have to be accurate because nobody will double check your crap. That's unfortunate to me. So, and I will agree. I think this is where we could blame the management, some of the management consultants for this. There is a certain amount of salesmanship that is accepted without substance, which is, in my opinion, a poor practice. If you're running a business, I would ask you to challenge the substance behind, you know, the pitch that you see. But there's a lot of people out there who are doing good work. So, I mean, I would say, Amos, you got lucky. All you do is when I looked at the graph, I talked in technical enough terms that the rest of the people in the room, they didn't understand the terms the first time I told them. So all I did was put a graph on the board and tell them the same terms. And then they agreed with me. And to be fair, I went back later and told them what I did and apologized. And I haven't been able to do that since because it made me feel like I was a liar. Well, I was going to say that because I was going <laughs> to ask you, because it sounded like, Amos, the way you're telling your story, it didn't really sound like you were respecting your customers. It sounds like you realized that and you resolved the scenario. So kudos to you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, I guess they were customers. They were internal, but <laughs> they were still customers. Again, if you're developing software, you have a customer, period. So, right. If you have a job, you have a customer, period. Yeah. Whether so, that be manager or the guy that you're serving at a counter, it doesn't matter. I guess the thing that I'll share, and I don't know, we can defer to the producer, John, as to how much we're going to invest in this discussion tonight. But I know there are a lot of people out there. If you look at blogs out there, there's a lot of people asking about, you know, the BA role in the Agile space. And I would hope one of the takeaways, if you are in that role, is to say that there is an opportunity for you to learn and to really help your development team better quantify some of these intangible or technical issues so that they can be addressed. Long term, that will help you reduce costs. It will help you become basically help improve your economic model because you'll be able to maintain your software with less effort and less cost. So those are fantastic BAs. 
and I've yeah. run into them. The ones yeah. that like they come to you with three solutions and they say this one's going to make us the most money because of this and this. And they like tell you all about it, just like you should be doing to your customer with your technical things. But unfortunately, most BAs I run into don't really do that. They're just yes. as bad as so, a lot of developers coming in where they just throw out some technical words, but the BAs come in and throw out some features that they want, but they don't want to express why. So this is where I want to take Amos to Toastmasters with me, and we're going to work on our motivational speaking, because I was trying to be motivating here, Amos, telling the BAs <laughs> to think about changing, think about how you could help your team improve and really, you know, help. Maybe you'll learn something in the process. You'll help the bottom line. So and then Amos says, well, there's all that's great, but there's only a few of those. But guess what? I want there to be more of them. So I, I agree. I work well with motivation. Like there's a few people that can do this and you can do it, too. You just yeah. need to get there. Yeah. But and, uh, but if we if we don't tell them that there are people able to do it, I feel like then yeah. they get discouraged. So there are people out there. I'll share. I actually once upon a time when John, Amos and myself all worked in a lab. We can debate how evil. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, it was. It was. A, it was a lab. It was kind of evil. We. Uh, I know. I. I had to follow. It was actually after you guys left the lab. I actually did write a business case based upon technical debt that was based upon costs to get like vendor support to get help to come in and fix some things. And we totally took a bunch of technical debt that we knew we had that was costing us money. And we wrote a business case, you know, with real data to demonstrate if we invested this, how basically within the course of about a year, we would completely recoup the cost of, you know, getting help. And I actually don't know what happened if that was ever done because as we know, we all kind of left the lab. But nonetheless, if, if you put that in front of leadership, you're like, wow, if I invest this money now and if I fix these problems and then next year I'm going to be able to be more efficient, any sane business leader is going to say, let's do it. So, so let's see if we can make a few more of those out there if, if you're in that type of a role. Also, those BAs that I know that are doing that are also making more money than all the BAs that I know that aren't. So if you want to be in that top 10 percent, you have to start explaining everything and really working hard on your job. No matter whether you're a BA, a developer, a product owner, no matter what, just go out there and communicate with people and work hard to do it right. Jason, I want to go back to a concept that you touched on, brushed up against a little bit earlier in the show, and it was the concept of the weighted shortest job first because there was, uh, I believe that there was a, a part of that is to select work that has lower low complexity or the lowest complexity and i wanted to hear more about that sure sure i mean that's that's a lean concept it's referenced in so many things that we have talked about in this show scaled agile i mean even the um what is it that product ownership in a nutshell video that amos used as a pick a few episodes back Ooh, i love but, that one. but to me it's it's just basic economics it's to say that if you can do two things that provide the same amount of value then you should do the one that requires the least amount of effort. And, and I, if I they get, require the same, that's when you get to choose your vision. Yeah, that's a good one, Amos. Yeah. Or maybe look a little harder. You know, that's that's maybe where there's a, an opportunity to have a feedback loop with the team or the stakeholders to say that the data makes these two stories exactly the same. If you're actually calculating way to shortest job first in a quantitative manner, that rarely happens. So you'll be off by a few points. So, yeah, I mean, John, to me, that's pretty simple. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. What I was prepared to take exception with there was lowest complexity. But now that you've re-explained it with equal amounts of value, 
if you have two competing things that you assess to have approximately equal amounts of value, that you should select the one with the lowest complexity first. So I'm in sync with that and I agree with that. And actually, I okay, that's from Lean. If I can speak freely, the thing that I actually would like to focus a little bit on is risk. Because I think, and, and to me, I think there's a value to say, I want to do the thing that provides the most value. Because when I think about risk, I kind of clump complexity into it because things that are complex inherently have more risk. So I would say you should look at that and yes. just say, what can I get done that provides a lot of value that's the easiest thing for me to do? So how do you quantify that? How do you quantify risk? Oh, it's, boy. Because we talked about subjective it. and objective earlier. And so... So if you go to business, you guess <laughs> business school, you, you they teach you it? lots of stuff. So, yeah. so there's lots of ways to quantify risk. Um, you mean like to ask for estimates and then treat them like deadlines? No, so <laughs> definitely I have, not. I have done risk analysis where if you watched us do it, it's like planning poker. We have a score for different things and we have numbers and we, you know, go down the list of things that have been identified as project risks. If you've done PMI, PMI has a specific process by which you identify risks. Oh God, I just threw up. Yeah, well, PMI. I have not heard PMI in a while, but yes, I have done that. But but you guys know, I mean, project managers, the number one job of a project manager is manage risk. You know, what's the foundation of the project management triangle? Risk. So I actually think it's kind of cool that they've embraced the idea of let's, you know, let's take some numbers. If you're on a PMI team or you're on a team with project managers, you're in a PMO, you go down the risk list for a project, you vote on it. And if you're in agreement, then awesome. Here's this is a five. And then you could actually compute a risk score. Another cool thing that I'm going to throw out there that I did actually get out of Lean Kanban Conference or the Modern Management Methods Conference now uh, recently was this idea of, you know, on a project, a lot of times we track a burn down of stories. But another one that would be fun to track is a burn down of risk. So when you start a project, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of risk. So, you know, make a list of that and actually score it. Come up with a number. And then as that you go forward through time, the team working together with the product owner, with their stakeholders should be doing things that eliminate those risks. And you should see those risks trend down. And I think that would be really cool to track that. I, I have that on my to-do list for a future project to say, let's try this thing I heard at the conference, which is to make a risk burn down and have that as a goal that, you know, we're going to start a project and have all this stuff where we don't know about and could impact us. Let's try to get a control, get a handle on that and reduce it throughout the project. Hey, I want to pause real briefly and talk about one way that you can maybe reduce risk on your project, and that might be by using our exclusive sponsor tonight on the podcast, CodeShip. Guys, CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple, right? We've talked about CodeShip before. They're our new friends, new best friends. So do you know why <laughs> CodeShip is good, John? Because one of the types of risks is what they call variability. And, you know, if, if you have a manual release process, which CodeShip helps you get rid of, right? Then you don't have any deployment risk because if you set your job up in CodeShip and you test it once, it just works. And if you're deploying every time you commit, then you're reducing the variability per deployment too of how much exactly. stuff is changing. Yes. Oh, change blindness and CodeShip, beautiful things that will help you get to a better place in your project. 
So I encourage all of our listeners to go out, check out CodeShip. They have a ton of great resources, which we've talked about on the show before. They have a great blog where they offer support. They offer helpful ideas for ways to use CodeShip, integrate with different platforms, cloud services, languages, etc. And they will help you get started. They have some of just the nicest people in the world working there. They recently uh, sent us some new stickers that I shared with uh, Amos the other day. Jason, sorry, I'll have to get you a sticker soon. Do they have metrics and graphs on them? On their stickers? Yes. No. <laughs> oh. I'll talk to Manuel and see if they can get a sticker with some metrics on it just for you. Metrics and code ship. I wonder if I can get deployment metrics from code ship. Hmm. You certainly can. Wow. Yay. Software development is hard enough. Let code ship make continuous deployment simple for you. Check them out today at codeship.io and tell them that your friends here at This Agile Life sent you. All right, guys, let's get back into the nitty gritty of our discussion of prioritizing work. It somehow got to risk. So I think risk plays in there um, because you should be doing things. You know, it was kind of the comment that, um, oh gosh, who was it? When we had Dave Thomas on, he talked about changing things that would make it right. Do something that makes it easier to change in the future. When faced with again, that's eliminating uncertainty. When faced with two decision points, always choose the one that will make change easier in the future. Was the essential gist of it. That's a fantastic, fantastic quote right there. Which, to me, honestly, focuses a little too much on the risk side because it doesn't. Really? Well, I think the. I feel like focus is all on the like the economic side. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. we don't care how long it's going to take or how crappy your tech debt is. We need this by next week. And yeah. you don't care that we're adding more crap. Yeah, That's what I like, like about the economic divided by complexity. Like use that to order things because that I think will ultimately balance out both sides because that's you need a balance. You need sometimes to take some some risk to get that economic gain. But sometimes you also need to say, hey, it's time for us to deal with a little bit of that technical side and reduce some complexity for the future. But everybody looks at that economic gain as a right now thing, even if it's not. Yeah, but that's um that's false because that or that's that's a poor judgment because you that's this idea of really what we could look, take as a learning from Kanban and from Edward Deming is that you want to make small controlled changes, look at the results, and over time you're able to calibrate and grow. More so that if you make a more dramatic change, trying to get a more immediate and a larger benefit. So I would like to try and summarize the discussion tonight and kind of wrap up with maybe a list of advice or a list of tips or a list of things to consider when you're trying to prioritize stories and features. And I'd like you guys to chime in here briefly and tell me if if I'm off base. But I think what we've talked about is... From the ownership of the project perspective, we want the whole team to be involved in providing input, deciding what what is the best thing for the project to do, and not just be completely command and control driven, right? We should be having feedback loops and feedback cycles that go up and down the chain of command within the organization. I think what I would add to that, John, I know we're, we're an audio podcast, but if you could envision the product owner as being this person that... I would love to say the product owner never makes a decision. Instead, the product owner facilitates making decisions using feedback from both the stakeholders and customers and also the delivery team. And so you'd have that product owner in the middle and on both sides of them, you'd have like a feedback circle. 
the product owner is, is continually doing things to make those feedback circles go around and around. So let's start having exercises there, call them product retros and get everybody involved. And that's where we decide how to move forward. Yeah, sure. So as, as once we've once we've got our structure in place where we've got everybody providing input and feedback and advice and clarity on what we're trying to do, we have a vision that we're working against. As we assess a story, as we assess a feature, we're going to have some basic guidelines and criteria that we're going to use to determine what's the highest value. And that's going to be established by some sort of project roadmap, project vision, shared understanding of the project that the team will share. And if you asked, you know, seven out of 10 people, they would all agree essentially that this feature would probably be the highest value based on that shared vision. I like that. The other thing I would add to that, John, it comes from you know, being a, a Kanban guy, I would love to see that information be transparent to the team. So we've mentioned it now, I think four times, you know, like in the Get Kanban game, that information is visible on the Kanban cards. So if you have that data there and you have this business value for each user story, make it transparent, put it out there where that information is visible and can be used by everyone on the team to make decisions. Don't bury it back in a document or in a spreadsheet or in a PowerPoint. Put it out there where the team can use it and get value from it. I like that, Jason. And I liked your idea about allowing analysts on teams and and other people in in similar roles on teams to help with documenting or proposing that here's some of the value. Here's the value in this one. Here's the value in that one so that everybody can make intelligent decisions as needs arise. And I know Lee's not here tonight, but let's be clear. We're talking about using these people to compute and determine the value, not to document it, okay? Right, right. This is valuable information. We're looking for their opinions and life experiences and any scientific data that they would have to. So then faced with multiple features and priorities that are similar in value, one of the things that we suggest is selecting the feature story that has the lowest complexity. And the reason for that is you want to get the most value as quickly as possible. So if you have two or three stories with approximately equal value, it makes then sense to select one that you could do quicker so that you could then more quickly get value, right? Right. Yes. Spot on. You're spot on, John. It seems so simple. And all three of us agree. It seems so simple when we lay it out like this, but it's not always this simple, is it? No. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think that it, it really is always this simple. If you sit back, take a deep breath and try to break it down and don't let just your emotions get involved. Well, and the other thing, you know, we're just talking here. The other thing that we need to be mindful of is a lot of the things we've talked through tonight, like this Jason and Amos coming to Nirvana about using business analysts and MBAs to do business cases, ah, is that that's hard. So don't just start doing it and say, okay, I'm going to start figuring out how to compute the cost of my technical debt. And you spend an hour, you're like, I didn't get it done. You give up. You need to work forward to say you truly have that, you know, you have that value score, whatever it is, that metric on every card on your Kanban board including the intangible ones, you know, so because what I think we do is we very quickly, we have these discussions, but then we get into a scenario where, okay, for some of our stories, we know what the value is. Awesome. We use that. A bunch of them, we don't know. We're not going to figure it out. So we're just going to start guessing again. And then we get back into that. We're in the spin cycle. So I would say that everybody needs to, you know, take this as inspiration. And the goal is to try to get to where you have a complete economic view of all the work that is before you on a project. 
I think that could potentially be just on the surface level a hard pill for many people to swallow. It's the reality of everyday life. It's the reality of business life is that there are tough economic decisions to be made. And those decisions are incredibly important when it comes to the life of a project and sometimes the life of a company. So don't overlook them. Well, what's funny is, Jay, you talk about that is that, you know, if you're in a small company, I think we mentioned the word startup three times tonight. If you're doing a startup, your business model is actually pretty simple because you're small. So one of the things that, man, this is not going to be tonight's discussion, but how could you have that kind of the simplicity of being in a small startup? But, you know, why was we grow and we grow and, you know, companies become enterprises? You lose that. And, and these simple things that, you know, if you're three guys working in a garage, you know, building a mobile app, trying to change the world, you could do all this math we're talking about on a napkin. Because common big- sense disappears. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> uh, maybe. So I, I guess that's where, and, and for someone who's invested some time in learning into the business context, it's like, I'm thinking, you know, why Why if you're small and you're simple, it's just so easy, and then it doesn't scale well, you know? So I guess we need to figure that out. This week's Hottest Picks. Jason, you're up first. So my first pick is everyone needs to go to the This Agile Life community and you need to ask Amos to play his ukulele on a future episode. (laughs) We need to have some This Agile Life music. He did it tonight before we started recording. It was hilarious because I started (laughs) singing. So go to our community via Google. Go to thisagilelife.com. Check us out and tell Amos you want music. Tell you what, if we get... 10 new people to sign up, I will put a video on our community of me playing the most horrible ukulele you've ever heard, probably. Really? And I I will do my Don Ho imitation as uh, a singing songs about tiny stories, okay? Instead of tiny bubbles, tiny stories. All kidding aside, three picks tonight. So check out the Agile Games 2014 conference. It's coming up. Um, It's May 2014. The conference is in June, if you're listening to us afterwards. So you might have missed it already. But um, check it out. It's going to be cool. If you missed it in 2014... We should do it in 2015 up in Boston. So check it out, agilegames2014.com. Tonight, we did talk about, on several occasions, the Get Kanban game that was created by Russ Healy. It's a great game. It's great teaching. If you want to check it out, you could download it for free online, the old versions. Or if you want to see something cool, he's got newer versions of it that you can buy at getkanban.com. So check it out. Again, it's a really good teaching tool. If you're a trainer, buy it. You can use it in your class. You'll pay for your investment in one or two classes, and people love the game. They'll promote it, and you'll help sell your class. And another game just to throw out there, it's, uh, I'm in the game mood tonight. It's the games conference that's coming, if you can't tell. A game from Innovation Games from uh, Luke Holman, the uh, Remember the Future game. That's where you challenge either a person or a team to think about the future, to describe it kind of like as a headline. And then once they think about what that future is, they can identify impediments that might be, you know, preventing them from getting there. And then they might also be able to identify some actions to help them achieve their goals. Okay. And that's all. That's enough. Good picks, Jason. I'll go next. My pick tonight is something I found on Twitter today. Uh, Atlassian has just recently released something called Agile Ready. And it's a combination of Confluence and this Confluence calendaring system and Jira and Jira Agile, where they all integrate together. There's the ability for creating stories in Jira Agile directly from the Confluence wiki. And there's all these nice integrations. So I'm going to check it out further. And I thought I would make it my pick tonight. Check out Agile Ready from Atlassian. That's really nice. Anything that helps you more easily get your stories in will cause you to split them up better. 
You betcha. That was my thought exactly. Amos, what are your picks tonight? All right. So I hate to tell you this, guys and uh, girls out there, but um, I am married to the most beautiful person on earth. And on the 28th of this month, it will be nine years that I've been married to her. So my first pick and always my first pick is my wife. I just wanted to say that. Thank you, Kelly. Very nice. Very nice <laughs> uh, of you. She's the reason why I can be here tonight. She's like, no, no problem. You got to go record a podcast. I'll watch the kids. See? Amazing. And then Tice already gave it away. Ukulele. I just bought a new one. Got tired of sharing one with my daughter and my wife, so I went and bought a new one today. My last pick, which John is really confused by, is This Agile Life, the conference. I really think that we need to put on a conference. And if you agree with me, start to tweet to John that we need to start getting a conference together. We should use the whole team approach to build the conference. Don't <laughs> no, no, John, you're the, you're the product owner. I'm just like the developer. So Jason, see how, <laughs> see how he throws that back at me when it's convenient for him. I, that's funny. And then I think about our, one of our episodes where it was the flick, the booger. And I can't believe that one's not going to get flicked over here. <laughs> flick the booger. Flick the booger to the guy that does conferences. That might that might have been episode number three, Flick the Booger. You have yeah, to go was, back and... Was oh, no, I was doing it at John because I wanted a good conference. Oh, oh I love you, Tice. That's fine. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening and keep living this agile life.